thank you for your prayers and thank you for uh, listening. Um, I want to uh, encourage you and invite you to turn to Matthew, the book of Matthew. That is the first book of the New Testament. Not necessarily the first one written, but it is the first one in, in our order of the, uh, of the Gospels and the order of the New Testament. Uh, Matthew chapter 18. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 18 um, for the duration of this morning's message. And I'll refer to some other passages as well, but I don't want you guys to get too hung up on that. Um, you can... That's, that's what your notes are there for. That's what the blanks are there for. So you can jot down some of those other, other references. Um, before we read this passage together, um, I wanted to tell you uh, about something I saw in the news. Uh, no, you probably didn't see it on the nightly news. Um, in fact, it didn't make headlines on CNN necessarily. Um, but, I, but it was nonetheless... A, um, I, I, as I read this story, I thought, well, now this is an interesting story. Um, what a situation to be in. Uh, last Thursday, there was a, a, a young couple was driving through um, the mountains in, in Utah, and they stopped at one of those kind of scenic lookouts, right, to take some pictures. And while they're standing there taking pictures, they hear this cry, distant cry, um, somebody sounds like they're yelling for help and they thought, is that kids kind of goofing around somewhere or is that somebody in need? So they called down on the side of the, this, this over, overlook and sure enough, it's somebody who's uh, in, in great need. Uh, a woman, Heather Blackwelder, laid there trapped in her car for two days until... These, this couple, this young couple who were just in their early 20s, Spencer and his girlfriend Cleo, found them. So Spencer rushed down the, down the hill to go help her out. Cleo looked at her phone and said, I don't have any service here. So she drove down the mountain to call 911. Within a couple of hours, Heather had been rescued from her car and rescued from the wreckage. Injured, hungry, thirsty, obviously. Um, for some reason, apologetic, but forever grateful for these two who stopped to rescue her and restore her to her family. So in interviews, they, the couple said they, they weren't sure how other people stopping at that overlook didn't hear the screams. But they never hesitated once they realized the situation. And this is, quote, uh, Spencer Dryden is quoted as saying, People call me a hero, but if you heard, help, help, in the woods, you wouldn't have driven away either. It definitely changes the way you look at life, he said. I feel like my life has been forever changed by saving the life of another person. Remarkable story. The Bible, though, I think the Bible could be summarized just this way. God rescuing humanity. God rescuing humanity and wanting to, desiring to, willing to restore them 
to himself, to restore him to his family. In the same way that Heather was helplessly trapped on the mountainside, we are helplessly trapped in our sin. And there's no way out. There's no way to get out of that. God wants to rescue us, restore him to himself, and he has placed his family, the church, there to help one another. Just like Spencer and Cleo, we must be ready to act as well when we find someone trapped in sin. Well, that's what this passage is about. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. Jesus here gives his disciples a plan for restoring somebody to God's family. So, follow along with me as I read aloud, beginning again at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on uh, any, what is, it, what is the word? On earth. If the two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask God that your spirit will move during this time, that it won't just be my words, but that you will speak through me, through this message straight to our hearts, God, that we may respond to the message the way you would have us to. To your glory and our joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God designed, God designed his church to be a holy and a loving family. God designed his church to be a holy and loving family so that, therefore, Believers, Christians, followers of Jesus must lovingly restore each other to his family. That's the context of this passage. That's the context of Matthew 18, 15 through 20. God is saying, look, you're a holy family. You're a loving family. I want you to be about restoring each other to the family when they go astray. I want, I want to make sure you know, though, you understand that family, when I'm talking about family, I'm talking about the church, followers of Jesus, those who have come to faith in Christ. Because when God saves us, He adopts us into His family. He is our Heavenly Father. And we are then brothers and sisters in Christ. So don't, 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 um, don't forget that. I'm going to use the term family a lot throughout this entire message. And I want you to realize I'm talking about the church, the church that's gathered together, the local church. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says this to the church there. He says, To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sanctified, saints. These are, these are another way of saying holy. Holy, set apart 
was the original meaning of the word, but it came to designate um, the people of God who are fulfilling God's design for their lives. They're not committed to a sinful way of life, but they belong to God now. God himself said, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Doesn't mean that we stop sinning, does it? Doesn't mean that we, that we stop making mistakes, because we do. But we continually acknowledge those sins. God's people, His family, say, we are sinners. It's almost a prayer that we should say every day, acknowledging to God, God, I'm a sinner. God, you are holy. God, save me. God, forgive me. God, make me holy like you are holy. That's what it means to be holy. And that's why Jesus calls um, his people to repent. That was the message that he gave. You can read the entire Gospel of Matthew. You'll see at the very beginning, he's calling out to people, repent and believe in the good news. Repent of your sins. Turn from them. Follow me. Follow my ways for you. I will show you the way to the Father. That's why he taught his disciples here to rescue his people from sin. To restore them to his family. But the family of God is not just holy. Think about it. If it was only a holy family, what would it tend to be? Harsh, maybe? Critical? Overbearing? Condemning? Has any of you ever experienced, have, have you experienced that in the church before? I've seen it. It's unfortunate that the church is often all too much like that. But the family of God is supposed to be loving. Before we jump back into Matthew 18, let me point out another passage in Corinthians where Paul is writing to them again. And in chapter 13, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, if I have all these wonderful gifts, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all, all, and all knowledge, and if I have all faiths so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all that I have away, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul's pointing out, it's great that you guys want to be right. <laughs> it's great that you want to be, to hold on to what's true. It's great that you want to serve others. It's great that you want to be a blessing. It's great that you are willing to sacrifice yourself for Christ. But if you're not loving each other, and if you're not loving other people, you're nothing. That's why also in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus could say, there are many people who are going to come before me at the end of time and say, Lord, Lord, you know, you are our Lord. Jesus is Lord. And then he's going to say, I never knew you. Go away from me. You didn't obey me. You didn't love other people. You thought you, thought you could be holy without love. So, it's kind of a there's, there is kind of a tension, though, between those two. And that's what I kind of want us to explore today a little bit. That tension between holiness and love. Uh, to, to think about it this way. Um, it's, it's helpful, I think, if we remember that the pursuit of holiness, to, to go and tell somebody his fault, is an act of love. The pursuit of holiness in our own lives, and the encouragement of it in others, is an act of love. And it demands that we seek the best for others and warning them against sin. 
God designed His church. God designed His church. So we must confront sin. And that's the, that's the first thing that, that I think Jesus is pointing out here. And that's the call to holiness. I want to kind of outline for you essentially three, maybe four steps that Jesus gives. They're right there. They're real basic. But I'll just kind of explain, maybe, maybe get a little more detail into it. But the first step there is right there in verse 15. The first step is personal confrontation. It's a way to put it. We don't like the word confrontation. Most people don't like to be confronted. Most people don't like to do confronting. <laughs> but the fact of it is that Jesus says, look, if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault. So there are four, I think there are four implications right there in just this first verse. And then they kind of carry through every other verse in this passage. The first implication is that brothers share mutual concern for one another. Brothers share mutual concern for one another. Um, you know, we, I know that many of us have experienced a lot of brokenness in our families. But few of us could argue that the, 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 the ideal situation for our families is that siblings care about each other. They share concern for each other. It doesn't always happen, does it? But wouldn't, we, wouldn't it be wonderful if it did? Um, don't, isn't there a sense that that's supposed to be the way it, it's... I mean, I'm supposed to, you know, be concerned for my brother. I'm, I should share concern for my sister. And that's the, that is the background here, for, especially for God's family. So if your brother sins, he's saying, this is somebody you love. This is somebody who's part of your family, the family of God. And so you should have a concern for him. You know, this, the term, the word, uh, just a brief aside, the phrase against you, some, some may would, would see that as if your brother sins against you, it means only if your brother does something that offends you personally or maybe sins directly against you. Um, and that, that may be true, and that would certainly be an implication here. But I think it's a lot broader than, than that. And one of the reasons why it's much broader than that is because actually in the very earliest New Testament, New Testament manuscripts of Matthew, the, in the original Greek, that little phrase against you is missing by a whole, a whole number of them. It could be that maybe they just kind of left it out as they transcribed it or... Or maybe it could be that later on they said, well, this is, we, we should really put this little phrase in there because it's more of like personal affront, personal offense. The, the point, though, is that um, even, even with the words against you, think about this. Think about the awareness of sin. Think about how sin affects the entire family of God. And when you become aware of sin, you have a concern for your brother. And he may not be sinning directly against you. He may not be offending you directly. But you love him. And you are aware of it. And you want to go to him and help him. Brothers also rescue one another from sin. We don't just share that concern of, oh boy, you know, you know Chris, he's, he's been stealing money from work. I'm really concerned about that. No, brothers rescue one another from sin. Sorry. You're not supposed to be pointing out sins. That was an example. That's an example. Don't read into that, people. Don't read into that, people. 
But brothers, rescue one another. So that's why Jesus says, go and tell him his fault. To, to tell him his fault means to attempt to convict or convince the person. You want to convince that person, look, what you're doing is wrong. Let me try to show you why it's wrong. He notices sin in a brother. He goes to him, he points it out, and he, and he says, I, need you, I want you to be aware of this so that you can repent of this. Because the way you're going is a way of destruction. It's going to ruin you. You're in need. So I'm going to go and rescue you from this sin. Brothers, though, also protect personal dignity. They show that mutual concern. They rescue one another. They also protect personal dignity. Because look what he does. He says, he adds that little phrase, between you and him alone. Just between the two of you. So this is not a time for me to say, hey, everybody, guess what Chris has been doing? <laughs> But this is a chance for me to go and say, hey, Chris, let's grab a coffee. Or, hey, I'm gonna, maybe I'm going to stop by your house and say, hey, we need to have a little conversation about this. I know this is going on. Let's talk about it. I, I don't want to bring this out in the open. I think we can resolve it between the two of us. I think if we talk about it, you'll see the seriousness of it, and you'll, you'll repent of it, and you'll save your embarrassment, You'll save humiliation. You'll, you'll protect your dignity. And so that's what Jesus advocates. Not, uh, not a smear campaign. Not going to Twitter to discuss a sin. Not going to social media. But personally, between you and him alone. And then if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Because brothers restore one another to the family. They restore one another to the family. That's the idea there. See, if he listens to you, means you're right. I have sinned. And he confesses it. He repents of it. He gets right. That's what it means when he says, if he listens to you. Then it says, you have gained your brother. Meaning that he is back in the fold. He's back in the family. He's not going to wander away. And the reason why, I think we know that, it's... It's, it's bringing that, it's that restoration of a brother is because Jesus just finished saying uh, or sharing a, a parable about a man who had a hundred sheep. One of them was lost, went astray. He used that word over and again here in these verses. And he leaves the others and he goes in search for the one who went astray and he finds it and he rejoices. He brings him back. He restores that sheep who went astray. And that is the goal, that's the motivation for us to confront sin. Now these implications, as I said, they, they, they will last throughout this entire process. But see, here, here's the thing. Unfortunately, your brother's not always going to listen to you. Right? He's not always going to go, Oh yeah, thanks for pointing that out. Thanks for pointing out my fault. He's not going to usually say that. And that's what Jesus says next. What if, what if he doesn't? But if he does not listen, take one or two others w along with you. So bring a group together that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So the second step here is what I would term just a group intervention. You grab another, another individual um, another member of the church. Uh, maybe, maybe it's somebody who knows him. Maybe it's somebody who's aware of this 
this problem or this sin as well. Or maybe you grab two people and have three of you and, and, and go to him and intervene and say, look, this is serious. You didn't listen to me when I shared this. And I'm, I'm going to bring, maybe, maybe you bring a, a pastor with you or maybe another member of your discipleship group or, or missional community or your missional community leader or a deacon or elder or somebody like that to intervene and say, this is serious. And notice Jesus makes this point that it's, a, it's founded in the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law established that and it's almost a, du a direct quote um, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses comes right out of the Old Testament law. Two or three witnesses were necessary in, in determining whether somebody was guilty or not of some sin or some disobedience to the law, breaking the law. Here they're not necessarily going, Let's, we're, we're going we're to decide whether you really broke the law or not. The, 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 the idea there is that they're going there to add weight to the matter. To, to show the brother that this is serious. And if you don't listen to us, we want to make sure we, know, we do have all of the facts of the situation so that we can bring it to the church. Look at the next step though. The third step would be a level called, that I would just say is, is church accountability. Notice the change from if he does not listen in verse 16 to in verse 17, if he refuses to listen. There's an intensification of the resistance here. The brother's not just like, I'm unwilling to do anything about this. But now he's saying, not just no. Heck no! I'm not doing that. Forget that. So he's actively opposing this. In fact, this might be the moment where he says, if you're going to call me on this, I'm out of here. I'm gone. Well, what, what would tell it to the church mean, though? What would tell it to the church mean? Jesus doesn't specify exactly what it means, but the implication was that it was brought to that wider body of Christ that more of the members were brought in, or at the very least, the representatives of the church, its, its leaders. So it could be the, an elder team, or maybe even bring some of the deacons in, or some of the other leaders of the church gathering together to say, hey, what's going on? What are we going to do about this? Our brother has is, is really, is really fallen here, and, and, and we need to help him out. You know, in the first century, the, in, the, in that particular culture, what they would do is they would go to the next meeting of the synagogue where all of the, the Jewish believers would gather together and they'd say, hey, um, I just want you guys to know I saw Cheryl doing XYZ this week. So what are we going to do about it? And then all of the leaders would go, how dare you? Harold, how dare you? It says don't do this. So you shouldn't do that. Get out of here. And they would cast her out. That's not how we're going to do it. Unfortunately, some modern churches have applied that very same process. So let's, let's all, when we get together at the end of the service, yeah, I have something I want to share. Yeah, I saw so-and-so down at the bar. Or, yeah, he's, he's beating his wife. Or, yeah, I saw her, you know, necking in the park or whatever. I don't know what, they, I don't know what people do nowadays. But 
Necking, what? Necking, I said necking, so I don't know. That, do they still do that? Um, let's not talk about that. Let's not talk about that. So, I, and, and unfortunately, some churches have done it like that. Or, or maybe at some other public meeting of the church. How tragic it is when you've, you jump to that step and you haven't gone through the process of personally confronted or, or that group intervention to give that person an opportunity to confess, to repent, to get right. Well, what if then he refuses even to listen to the church and he remains in rebellion? He says, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And this is, this is the step of actual removal from membership. Removal from membership. The whole church, in fact, has a responsibility in this act, in this process. The whole church, meaning all of its covenant members, would need to respond and to act. A Gentile and a tax collector, these were the outsiders of Jesus' day. These were the people who were not allowed into the synagogue. They weren't allowed to be in those times of worship. We would say if, if we were a synagogue in, in New Testament times and somebody came to the door who was a Gentile or was a quote-unquote tax collector working for the Roman government, we'd say, sorry, this, this is an exclusive gathering. You're not allowed in here. And so then we'd say, oh, you've got a problem with your sin? Yeah. Well, get out there and go hang out with the Gentiles and the tax collectors. You're no longer welcome here. Well, that's in, in, many, way, in many cases, that's what people have done to apply this passage. They said, well, should we, quote unquote, shun that person? Should we exclude him from all of the activities of the church? Should we warn all the members, don't have lunch with this person anymore. You're not allowed to talk to them. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. He's not saying to create a blacklist effectively, treating him like an enemy of the church. Oftentimes, and most of the time, that does more harm than good. John Calvin, in commenting on this very passage, said this, And how comes it that those who have fallen straight in their sin do not often repent, but because they are regarded with hatred and treated as enemies? And thus acquire a character of hardened obstinacy. Nothing, therefore, is more appropriate than meekness. And what he means by that is a gentle spirit, which reconciles to God those who had departed from him. On the other hand, he who inconsiderately indulges in foolish flattery willingly places in jeopardy the salvation of a brother which he had in his hand. In other words, but not to say something is going to be just as bad. To not say something and not to try to help your brother out when he is in trouble means that he could go off. He could, be, he could lose the, the, the assurance of his salvation that he had at one time. For in 1 Corinthians, again, Paul says this about a situation. He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus... And my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. And listen to these strong words. He says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, this, the sinful nature, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That's pretty powerful, strong language. And, and it's kind of scary. <clears throat> 
But it's, at the same time, in Galatians, he writes this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But he says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Lest you too be tempted. The, um, we have to reconcile those two, don't we? The, 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 the aspirations for holiness, but also our call to be loving and gentle in our correct, in our rebuke, in our restoration of believers. Um, Ken Sandy, I wanted to, to share this quick story, uh, an illustration from his ministry. Uh, Ken Sandy is, um, has written several books and resources to help, to help churches and also individuals do um, uh, reconciliation and conflict resolution and, and even conflict management. And, and he shares this story that was, uh, for him, a powerful illustration of what it means to, to follow these steps that we just looked at to bring somebody, to restore somebody to repentance. And, and here's, here's the story. He says that a man... A man told his wife that he was filing for divorce and moving in with another woman. We, most of us would say, well, that's kind of serious. We probably have to do something about that, right? Well, the wife was unable to dissuade him, so she went to her, their pastor for advice. He gave her several suggestions on how to persuade her husband to change his mind or at least to come in for counseling. Nothing she said to her husband during the next few days dissuaded him, and he began to pack his things. In desperation, she returned to her pastor and asked him, asked him to talk with her husband. At first, the pastor declined to take an active role, saying that he did not want to scare him away from the church. The wife asked the pastor how he could take such a position in the light of Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, or Galatians 6, verses 1 through 2, which I just read a moment ago, and many related passages. After a long discussion, the, sh the pastor realized that he was neglecting his responsibilities as a shepherd. As a result, he went to visit the husband that evening and offered to help him work out his marital problems. When the husband adamantly refused to change his course, the pastor pleaded with him to change his mind and offered all the resources that, of the church to help solve the problems in his marriage. When even that did, did not dissuade the husband, the pastor finally explained that the Matthew 18 process said, well, we just have to continue this process if you're not going to listen. And he said, I, I can't stop you from filing for divorce. I mean, you, I, I can't tell you what to do. But I must tell you that you may be removed from church membership if you deliberately violate Scripture as you are planning to do. After he got over his initial shock, the husband said, You mean I'll be kicked out of the church for divorcing my wife? pastor said, well, under those circumstances, I guess, if you, want to talk, if you want to put it that way. So hearing this, the husband lost his temper, ordered the pastor out of his home. That's probably what I would expect to happen, too, if I was in that situation. But early the next morning, however, the pastor received a phone call from the husband who wanted to talk with him again. They met an hour later, and by 10 o'clock that morning, the husband was on the telephone telling the other woman that he would not be moving in with her. Later that day, the pastor began counseling with this couple, and together they started to work out the deep problems that had brought them to this crisis. 
10 years later, he said, they are still raising their family together and thanking God for a pastor who cared enough to get involved the way Jesus commanded. When he goes on to say, I wish I could say that every intervention like that ended up that well, but many of them obviously don't. Many people will refuse to acknowledge, will refuse to, to, to come clean and to be restored to the family. But our motive, however, in doing all of this is love. See, that's the other side. God designed His church, His family, to be holy, but to also be loving. And to be loving, we must pursue restoration. We must go, to, go seek them. So we see that the church is to, to treat Him or let Him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. But what does that mean? I believe it, I think it means to offer Him the gospel. To offer Him Jesus. To pray for Him. To say, don't stop coming. Just because you are having this issue. Just because you're no longer a member. Um, it may be, I, you know, to be honest, there may be times when a, when a situation is so serious that you have to say, look, I don't think it's a good idea for you to come to our gatherings. Because you've hurt some people here. And they're... And they can't worship God the way they should. So maybe it wouldn't be a good idea for you to come until you get this right. Tragic as that situation is, it has to happen. And, and the next few verses show us the authority that Jesus gives to the church in order to act like this. Briefly, verse 18, he says, Truly I say to you... It's not obvious in English, but in the Greek, that you is plural. He goes from talking about an individual, about an individual person and how they, how they interact with a brother who is sinning. And here it changes to you as the church, you all. The authority of binding on earth and loosing on earth. That binding and loosing term refers to the church's authority that is given by God to speak on matters with the authority of Jesus. And here specifically about the authority of, of church membership when people are having a problem. Again, I say to you, he says in verse 19, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, that, that sounds pretty awesome. Hey, Let's pray about this. We both agree that we want to see that happen. So let's agree on it. Let's pray for this. But it's not a blanket promise, even though it says, even though he says, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Because the very next verse is that qualifying statement. For where two or three are gathered in my name. Don't, don't mistake this. Don't misinterpret this. When it says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Many of us have turned that into, you know what? I don't need to be in the church. I don't need to go to the church gatherings because this verse says all you need is two or three people in Jesus' name and there's Jesus with us. He's with us and we're good to go. So, I mean, hey, let's, let's just get together, two or three of us, and we'll watch football on Sunday morning. And, and we're all Christians, so... Pass the corn nuts in Jesus' name. We're, we're, we're being the church. We're doing church. 
That's not exactly what he meant. What he means is, in my name. That's pretty powerful. The church is prevented from abusing its God-given authority. In the context here, where two or three are gathered in my name, they're, they're deciding a matter of church discipline. They're deciding, we tried to restore this brother, and he's unrepentant. What are we going to do about it? We have to decide on this. Jesus is there. Jesus is there to, to help you deal with the painful decisions and the painful situations. Jesus is there to guide His church. In Jesus' name, in, in my name here, in Jesus' name means that doing that which is consistent with God's design for us and for His church, uh, according to His character and according to His ways as revealed in Scripture, it it's, it's actually requires a whole lot of us as every individual member of the church needs to know God's Word needs to be in fellowship with Christ through His Word and through prayer. Because when we come together to make these decisions, it's, imp it's imperative that they be preceded by prayer and biblical counsel. But how can members gather in Jesus' name without understanding God's will as revealed in Scripture? How can we point out sin if we don't know what God declares to be sin? How can we restore our brother if we have not been restored through the grace of God in Christ ourselves. The tragedy of the situation as described here is that oftentimes a brother or sister who we've, we've, we've known and walked with for maybe uh, months, years, um, maybe our whole life is confronted with a sin and says, I would rather continue in that sin than continue in fellowship with you. It's a tragic situation when you get that, when you, when you speak to a, an individual and say, hey, this is a problem. And then later that day, you get a message <laughs> from his wife, at least at the time it was his wife, saying, I don't want to have anything to do with that guy ever again. I don't ever want to see him again. And you, did, you went there in love to say, you're ruining your marriage. You're going to ruin your life. What are you doing? You who claim to be part of God's church, part of His family. It's, it's tragic when it comes to that point. But we must never forget that the offer of grace always stands. The offer of grace remains. Perhaps that, that is the thing that the uh, individual needs more than anything else. It's to understand the grace of God in Christ. I was, um, I was reading um, a bit and came across this, this story um, that many of you may have heard or maybe you've seen in, in its different forms um, in a film version or musical film version or maybe on a stage and you've watched this story enacted in a theater um, the story of Les Miserables is the story of Jean Valjean. The story of a man who was put in a French prison for stealing a loaf of bread, right? But during that experience of those long years in prison, he becomes hardened by the experience. He's hardened by his own sin, in fact. And, and 
And his life is now one of brokenness and one of hopelessness. There's no other way out. He has no other recourse but to, to do whatever he can to get by. Not thinking of anyone but himself. Thinking that this is just the way he's always going to be. Always going to be in sin. Always going to be broken. Until he meets the bishop. The bishop. And he spends the evening with the bishop and his sister and, and another woman who worked there in the, the church. But Jean Valjean um, sees their kindness as an opportunity. As an opportunity to get ahead. And this is what happened the, the next morning. Monsignor Bienvenu was walking in the garden. Madame Magloire ran toward him quite beside herself. Monsignor, she cried, does your lordship know where the silver basket is? Yes, said the bishop. God be praised, I did not know what had become of it. The bishop had just found the basket on a flower bed. He gave it to Madame Magloire and said, here it is. Yes, she said, but there's nothing in it. Where's the silver? Ah, said the bishop, it's the silver then that troubles you. I don't know where that is. Good heavens, it's stolen. That man who came last night stole it. And in the twinkling of an eye, with all the agility of her age, Madame Magloire ran to the oratory, went into the alcove, and came back to the bishop. The bishop was bending with some sadness over a cochlearia de Guillon, which the basket had broken in falling. At Madame Magloire's cry, he looked up. Monsignor, the man has gone. The silver is stolen. While she was uttering this exclamation, her eyes fell on a corner of the garden where she saw traces of the escape. A capstone of the wall had been dislodged. See, that is where he got out. He jumped into Cochelet Lane. The wretch, he stole our silver. The bishop was silent for a moment. Then raising his serious eyes, he said mildly to Madame Magloire, Now first, did the silver belong to us? She was speechless. He continued, For a long time I have wrongfully been holding, withholding the silver. It belonged to the poor. Who was this man? A poor man, quite clearly. Alas, alas, it's not on my account or mademoiselle's. It is all the same to us. But it is for you, Monsignor. What is Monsignor going to eat with now? The bishop looked at her with amazement. But don't we have any pewter cutlery? She shrugged her shoulders. Pewter smells. Well, then, iron. She grimaced. Iron has a taste. Well, then, wooden implements. In a few minutes, he was breakfasting at the table where Jean Valjean sat the night before. While breakfasting, Monsignor Bienvenu pleasantly remarked to his sister, who said nothing, and, and, and Madame Magloire, who was grumbling to herself, that there was, a, there was really no need even of a wooden spoon or fork to dip a piece of bread into a cup of milk. Was there ever such an idea, Madame Magloire, to herself, she said, as she went back and forth, to take in a man like that and to give him a bed at his side. And yet, what a blessing he did, nothing but steal. Oh, good Lord, it gives me the chills just to think of it. As the brother and sister were rising from the table, there was a knock at the door. Come in, said the bishop. The door opened. A strange, fierce group appeared on the threshold. Three men were holding a fourth by the collar. The three men were gendarmes. The fourth 
Jean Valjean. A brigadier of gendarmes who appeared to the head group was near the door. He advanced toward the bishop giving a military salute. Monsignor, he said. At this word, Jean Valjean, who was sullen and seemed entirely dejected, raised his head with a stupefied air. Mon Monsignor, he murmured, then it was not the curé. Silence, said a gendarme. It is his lordship, the bishop. In the meantime, Monsignor Bienvenu had approached as quickly as his great age permitted. Ah, there you are, he said, looking at Jean Valjean. I'm glad to see you. But I gave you the candlesticks too, which are silvered like the rest and would bring 200 francs. Why didn't you take them along with your cutlery? Jean Valjean opened his eyes and looked at the bishop with an expression no human tongue could describe. Monsignor, said the brigadier, then what this man said was true? We met him, he was acting like a fugitive, and we arrested him in order to find out. He had this silver. And he told you, interrupted the bishop with a smile, that it had been given to him by a good old priest at whose house he had slept. I see it all. And you brought him back here? It's all a mistake. If that's so, said the brigadier, we can let him go. Please do, replied the bishop. The gendarmes released Jean Valjean, who shrank back. I is it true they're letting me go? He muttered, as if talking in his sleep. Yes, you can go. Don't you understand? said a gendarme. My friend, said the bishop, before you go away, here are your candlesticks. Take them. He went to the mantelpiece, took the two candlesticks, and handed them to Jean Valjean. The two women observed without a word, gesture, or look that could disturb the bishop. Jean Valjean was trembling all over. He took the two candlesticks distractedly with a bewildered expression. Now, said the bishop, go in peace. By the way, my friend, when you come again, you needn't come through the garden. You can always come and go by the front door. It is only closed with a latch, day or night. Then turning to the gendarmes, he said, Messieurs, you may go. The gendarmes left. Jean Valjean felt like a man about to faint. The bishop approached him and said in a low voice, do not forget ever that you have promised me to use the silver to become an honest man. Jean Valjean, who had no recollection of any such promise, stood dumbfounded. The bishop had stressed these words as he spoke them. He continued solemnly, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil but to good. It is your soul I am buying for you. I withdraw it from dark thoughts and from the spirit of perdition and I give it to God. Well, the story continues. Not without difficulties, not without setbacks, but that moment changed everything for Jean Valjean. In that moment, his, the trajectory of his life was changed. That moment of grace, that experience of restoration. Come back to the family. Come. This is not your true identity. Your sin is not your true self. You are a child of God. Come back to Him. Come. If your brother sins, go and tell him his fault, said Jesus. This was the Jesus who was Himself treated like an outcast.
an outsider, an enemy. Jesus, the perfect Son of God, the Father, the perfect brother, was unjustly killed like a wretched sinner. Jesus, who deserves to remove us from God's family, took our punishment instead. He himself was removed from God and his family when he bore his sins on the cross. All because our sins have separated us from God. All because he also loves us and desires to make us part of his holy and loving family. All because he desires to restore us to the Father. Our sin is great, but the Father's love is greater. He calls us to return to him and turn away from our sin, be restored to his family through faith in Jesus. Will you return? Will you come to him, maybe for the first time? Will you, though, then offer that grace and that restoration to others? That's our challenge today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, God. I thank you for loving me, for giving me unconditional grace. I, I'm, I'm no better than Jean Valjean. Yes, maybe his punishment was, was initially worse than the crime deserved. But the fact is that for each and every one of us who are sinners, we have, we, we have received so much mercy, so much grace just to be able to live every day, to breathe in and out and to have the good that we have. We have received grace from you. And now it's offered through Jesus. Grace to return from our sins. To be restored to him. To give us a chance to live the kind of life that we're meant to live. Lord, do a work in us today and every day as we live as your people as your family, as the church, by your grace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.